some of us may be having a retreat that is peaceful, concentrated, pleasant, minds are quiet, heart is open. So that may be the experience for some of us. For others of us, we may have come into the retreat with some challenges or real difficulties from our lives that we carry in with us that can really be up for us, even magnified as we sit here being present with our experience. So it can be quite challenging for us and quite stressful and really a lot of suffering. Some of us might be having that kind of retreat. Others of us may not have come into the retreat with any particular strong difficulties from our daily lives, but then we may be surprised to find that as we sit to meditate, strong, difficult feelings or experiences come up for us. And that can be hard. In any case, if we sit long enough, all of us will be faced with times on retreat, but also we know in our daily lives, where there's some real difficulties, challenges, stress, some suffering that we have to learn to work with. So tonight, what I wanted to talk about are to discuss some ways to work with some of these difficulties, in particular on retreat, but also in life in general, and also talk about ways that we sometimes create suffering, extra unnecessary suffering, and we may not even be aware of how we're doing that. Last night, Mary spoke of this idea of um, nothing to do, nowhere to go, no one to be. It's just a beautiful way to approach practice, which is simply this opening to our experience without judging or clinging, just allowing everything to just be as it is, right? That's the way we tend to talk a lot and present the teachings. So we come here to the retreat and They feed us, we're safe. No one is putting any demands on us that we have to attain anything, right? We create an externally simple form in which we sit and walk. And basically all we're asked to do is just sit here and be present with whatever is. What could be simpler? It's amazing to find out how hard it is to do that, just to sit and to be, and how much suffering can come up, not necessarily, but can come up just in that, just allowing ourselves to be with ourselves. So often we have an adversarial relationship with our own being. Right? You know, we say, don't cling. Sounds simple. You can't do it. I mean, you can do it in a moment, right? We've all had times when the heart and the mind are quite open and free, and we're just in a real harmonious flow and relationship to whatever the experience of life is. The sense of self may not be strong. Some real deep happiness arises. We've all experienced moments of freedom and non-clinging. The problem is when the proper 
circumstances, the proper causes and conditions come together, we're hooked right back in and caught. Right? Because those latent seeds of clinging haven't been uprooted. And so a lot of the work we're doing here is kind of uh, digging up those seeds. Right? So sometimes when these difficulties present themselves, we get in this reaction like, not this, I don't want to feel this. Rather than seeing it as an opportunity to work with some uh, difficult or challenging places within ourselves. So that's some of what I want to talk about uh, tonight. You know, we don't need the Buddha to tell us about suffering. We know all about it. We're experts, right? We all know about a lot about suffering. What we're not experts about is what to do about it, right? And we often keep trying the same strategies over and over again know, expecting different results. Let me read a quote from Ajahn Sumedho. He says, the human habit of clinging to desire is ingrained. We in the West think of ourselves as sophisticated and educated, but when we really begin to see what is going on in our minds, it is rather frightening. Most of us are horribly ignorant. We do not have an inkling of who we are or what the cause of suffering is or of how to live rightly. Not an inkling. So that can sound pretty grim. But we want to keep in mind that the Buddhist path, the Buddhist teaching, this whole dharma is an end of struggling, an end of stress, and an end of suffering. So what Sumedho is pointing to, he's just asking us to take a look at, a, a, a realistic look at what our situation is in order to then find wise and skillful ways to move forward and to work with ourselves and our experience. Right? not get stuck in the same old habitual conditioned reactions to our situations. So here are a few suggestions on dealing with some of the difficulties that can arise on retreat. In particular, I'm thinking of retreat, but this could apply to life. And before I actually give the suggestions, I want to give my a clothes shopping analogy as a suggestion on how to work with anything that's any of these teachings. I'm not that much of a clothes shopper, but um, you know, you go to the store and maybe the shirts or whatever, they're all on the rack, right? You find one that looks interesting. You take it off the rack, you put it on, you try it on. See actually how does it feel? Stand in the mirror, walk around, whatever. If you like it, you keep it. If you don't like it, you put it back on the rack, move on to find one that works. So all of these suggestions are things that go into our toolkit. And if it's a tool that works for us, feels good, fits in the hand, does the job, we use it. If not, 
just put it back. So, you know, you can see what works and what's useful. That's the way that I would suggest taking all of these things. So the first point I want to make is that if we're to have any possibility of freedom, that possibility hinges upon mindfulness and awakefulness. What is the meditation instruction for when you're lost? There is no instruction. When you're lost, you're gone. You don't even know you're gone, right? There's no instruction for that. The instruction comes in in that moment of waking up, coming back. So in our lives, during those times when we're running on automatic pilot, which probably for most of us is a fair amount of the time, during those times, we actually don't have freedom and choice. We're simply acting out of the conditioned, habitual, reactive mind. Right? So to the extent we're awake, clear, mindful, present, to that extent we're able to choose and to act in ways that lead us to you know, more happiness, less suffering for ourselves and for others. Okay? So that's a lot of the work we're doing here. The first thing is just developing this ability to be more awake, more present, more mindful. We don't want to get caught in a lot of judging. We don't want to get stuck in, well, gee, you know, I'm not doing a very good job, or I'm terrible. No. Think how much of our lives we've spent in this automatic pilot mode. And compare that to the amount of time we've spent cultivating an open, loving heart. Clear, mindful presence and awakefulness, right? It shouldn't surprise us that it's not easy to stay present with our experience. Because right? we haven't spent, we've spent a lot of time programming and conditioning the mind in the old habitual ways. So it's natural that it's going to take, like anything, some work and some doing. So we don't want to start judging and comparing against some ideal we think we want to be. We just want to keep in mind that this is important about coming to wakefulness and that we are here, to really have some appreciation, we are here doing this difficult work but this important work. So that's the first thing that I want to talk about, just this importance of mindfulness. One other piece I want to put out, uh, kind of as a preface also, is I think it's very, very important, and I don't hear this one talked about as often, but to recognize that there is a, for all of us, we have a point or a line which if any experience crosses over that point or that line, it's going to be too intense and too much for us to work with well, right? If it's on this side of the line, we can work with it. But if it gets too intense, right? And so we can all easily imagine situations, for example, with, take anything, physical pain, right? There's a level of intensity where we're not going to be able to be clear and present and awake with it. We'll be in too much aversion, it's too much, okay? 
same for any difficulties, you know, some of the emotions or mental states that can come up on retreat. They can be strong and they can be difficult and we can still find a way to work and be present with them. But if they reach a certain point, it's too much. And I think one of the ways that we create suffering for ourselves sometimes is working, trying to work in a way of being present and awake with some experience when really what might be more useful there is to find a way to back off a bit, right? Or to alleviate it a bit. So take a simple example, sitting with some pain in the body, knee pain. If we move, the first time we we get any pain, we never allow ourselves to stay present with anything you know, unpleasant. We'll never learn how to work with that, right? So, of course, we want to be able to stay with some of these difficult sensations. However, there's a point at which, you know, people have damaged their knees sometimes sitting so long. That's not so helpful. If we find ourselves in a stress or a struggle, that's a clue if we have enough mindful awakefulness to come to bring to that situation, that's a clue that maybe this might be a little too much for us. And that's one of the arts of meditation, is finding out which side of the line the experience is on. And we will all have times when we're, the experience is on one side of the line and we're working with it in the way that's appropriate for the other side. So, for example, we'll find times when Whatever's going on is too intense and we need to back off a bit and find ways to do that. Either, you know, mindfully, quietly, stretch the leg out, get some relief, stand up. Or if it's something mental or psychological or something, maybe not so intensely zoom in on it, but find a way to back off and become a little more spacious. Maybe take a walk, do things that nurture us and care for us. So there's times when we need to do that when we're still trying to really be there with it. There will also probably be times when really we could be with this experience, but we, we just don't do it for whatever reason. Right? So we, not, we may not always get it perfectly right, but just to be aware of that notion that you know, we're not going to necessarily be able to work with every single thing that comes up in a pure, direct, you know, mindful way. Our, our ability to stay present with the heart and mind quite steady, with deep equanimity and, and peace, that continues to expand out. So that line, that dividing line, keeps moving. And that's just one of the fruits of practice. So another suggestion I have is not to judge our practice by how pleasant or unpleasant it is. That's real common. Probably we'll all have times when we do that. (coughs) Think about it. What is a good sitting? We all know what a good sitting is. You know, we talk about not judging it, but we know. It's some version, whatever it is for each of us, of it's, it's a pleasant sitting. The mind's peaceful, calm, deep. The body's at ease. 
we're open, we're spacious, loving, whatever, you know, fill in whatever you want. We know what a good sitting is. What's a bad sitting? We all know what a bad sitting is, right? We tend to judge it good and bad by how pleasant or unpleasant it is. And of course it extends beyond our sitting. What's a good life? And what's a bad life? We all know. I'm not saying that it's not natural to do these things, or that there aren't situations that, that aren't desirable, and we're gonna, I'm going to talk more about that in a, in a bit. But just to start noticing, especially here in the practice, how we judge, and by unconsciously, sometimes unaware, where, we, where we've got that stance of good versus bad, already we've created a gap or a separation between our ability just to be fully open and present with what's going on in the moment. That's one of the places where we create a suffering, right? And we don't notice sometimes that we do it. I can think of many times on retreats when you know, I would just get into these fabulous meditative states, and I know some of you have had some experiences like this, you know, and I won't go off into that a lot, but it's, it's great. It's very, very pleasant, some of these, you know, really intense meditative states. And sometimes the thought would arise, you know, this is it. This is really it. Not the big it, but an it. Okay? And then, sometime later, I come back. Sometimes the same day. And it's all fallen apart. Right? I'm struggling the body hurts, the mind won't settle down, whatever, some difficulty, something, some mental state, something emotional has come up. And I'm wondering what went wrong and where did my good sitting go? And I'm struggling trying to get back some, recreate some particular experience. Right? Nothing went wrong. It just changed. Right? That's all. We know on an intellectual level that nothing lasts and it changes, but we don't really know it sometimes on the gut level. Right? So to the extent that we are able to um, see that whatever arising is good material to work with. That might not be easy all the time. Right? It steps us out of that artificial duality that we create between ourselves and our experience. You know, I would say probably, I, I know few people here, but most people I don't know, but I'm guessing that most of us do come to Dharma practice uh, in some way or other wanting to improve our situation or our circumstances, right? To make things better. You know, perhaps we, we want less stress, more peace, more happiness in our lives. We want less discomfort or pain. How is it that we seek happiness in general in life? It's not just here on retreat in general. This is worth looking at because we carry it into our practice here. Right? 
we tend to seek happiness by, I mean, it sound, it's so simple, it sounds silly to say it, but we tend to seek happiness by creating or holding on to more pleasant experiences, those things we want, and getting rid of or avoiding unpleasant experiences, those things we don't want, right? I mean, it's very, that's obvious. Nobody's trying to get more of what they don't want and less of what they want. I mean, it's almost ridiculous to say that. Um, Let me read another quote here from, um, this is from Hari Das, who teaches, he's not a Buddhist, teaches in a different tradition. Hari Das says, We live our entire existence from this point of view, seeking those things, situations, and people that make us happy and avoiding those things that make us unhappy. But even when conditions seem ideal to us, there is always that nagging certainty somewhere in our minds that the situation will eventually change, that the security and happiness of the moment will, be, will ultimately be lost. In truth, we are never totally at peace. There is always something to be anxious about. Ordinary life is really a constant dilemma. That's where he does. He goes on to say that spirituality means learning how to live life as free, conscious, and loving beings instead of from the point of view of dilemma. I like the way he says that. It's, he uses his own kind of language here, but I like that. You know, how to learn to live as free, conscious, and loving beings instead of point of from the point of view of dilemma. And we get our laboratory right here to do that when we sit down and close our eyes, just to be in this moment with this experience. You know, what is it that keeps us from being free with this? Now look, even single-celled organisms, if you give them certain stimulus, you know, they move away from some stimulus and towards others. It's deeply wired into the nature of being alive. So it's nothing wrong, and we're not necessarily going to stop doing that about creating more of what we want in pleasant circumstances and getting away from others. The problem is, if that's our only strategy, and for most people, that is the only strategy. That means that our happiness and our well-being is dependent upon external circumstances. It's dependent upon the way um, the winds of life happen to blow. That leaves us in a very tenuous position. Right? We all know when you come here to sit and meditate, you can't make anything happen, right? We can cultivate certain conditions so that you know, certain experiences become more predisposed to happen, but you can't make anything happen, right? Sometimes we come here to meditate, we sit down and we get what we want, and sometimes we don't. Right? That kind of happiness or well-being, that ordinary kind, you might call conditional happiness, because it's conditioned or dependent upon the circumstance. That's an important piece of happiness, and we're going to continue, of course, to do that. But we want to add in another piece, 
And the peace we want to add in is what you might call an unconditioned happiness. It's the happiness that's not so dependent upon having to have or not have any particular experience, but it's the happiness, it's rather it's based upon what is the relationship we're having with whatever experience is occurring. That's the shift. And that's some of the work we get to work on here. What is the relationship we're having in this moment with whatever experience we are having? So getting back to what I said earlier, that there are some situations and experiences that might be too much for us and others that clearly we can work with, it, it ties back to the appropriate and useful place for both of these kinds of happiness, the conditional happiness. There's times when we need to change the situation, right? We need to change our experience. We need to find a way to back off, to take care of ourselves. That's changing the conditional. And we also need to strengthen and grow our ability to be in relationship with even more difficult experiences. So, and there is a fruit of practice. There is a place that we can come to, and we don't have to be fully enlightened beings or Buddhas to touch this place, where the heart and mind can be quite at peace. It's a real deep equanimity in the presence of some quite unpleasant experiences. It is possible to do that. And some of you have experienced that. And so for the others, it's, you know, it's you just to know that this is a real fruit of practice. So we're not buffeted around by life so much. Right? One of the something that's talked about a lot is that it, Another way of talking about it is that any moment, potentially, potentially, has the seeds of awakening there, or it's a possibility of awakening for us into freedom, right? regardless of the experience itself. That's contained in any experience, if we can work in it. So when suffering and difficulties come up, say here on the cushion, for example, we tend to get contracted around it and tighten up. Right? Mary mentioned yesterday or the day before that I have recently, in the last few months, I've come back. I was on a long, I was, did an 11-month retreat. So I'd been planning to do this for many years. I've set lots and lots of retreats of different lengths, but I'd wanted to go take a year and go off and really pursue this more intensely. I was so excited when I finally got to the retreat center. I couldn't believe I was actually there. Showed up in the evening. The place is just beautiful. I, I knew, oh, I can be here. I can see myself being here. It was great. I was excited. I unpacked a little, went to sleep, got up in the morning, did a little straightening up, unpacking, started to sit and walk, and about halfway through the morning, wham, I got hit with this despair. Suddenly, this year is looming. <laughs> and I had told all my friends, I'm going for a year. I couldn't go home. <laughs> 
and I couldn't bear it. It was too much. I couldn't bear it. And I just lay, I actually have a motion coming up now, just a little re residue of it. It was so painful and I lay on the bed and I sobbed and I just thought, what am I going to do? It passed. <laughs> right. In that moment, it took a long time in, in this particular retreat to get to a place where when difficulties come up, and they can come up even in these long retreats where you can get, you know, as you start getting deeper and deeper and more open, and still you, you, know, you, you, you can have the ups and downs that come in any retreat. It took a long time on this retreat to make the shift where when the difficulties come up, rather than getting caught and identified and sucked in in an immediate reaction like, no, not this, I can't bear this, to take a real active interest in that experience, to see what is the nature of despair, of loneliness, of depression. Right? Now we want to be careful because sometimes if we don't have the tools yet and we're not in a strong enough place, we need to find that other way where maybe we need to also know when to back off too. One of the beauties of the long retreat was is that there was no hope. <laughs> See on this retreat, you know, you can make it three days and you have hope. It may not feel like it actually, I have to be careful, I'm making a generalization, I realize that. Right? But you were already to Friday, Saturday. Man, I couldn't see the end. So it forced you, there was nothing to do but just open directly into this experience here. And one of the things that helped me was a way of speaking about our experience that comes from uh, Sumedho again. And this was so helpful. If you ever listen to Sumedho's talks, whatever experience he's talking about, sometimes he'll say, he'll, he has this phrase he usually goes, it's like this. So he'll say, you know, suffering is like this. Right? Difficulty is like this. Happiness is like this. Right? Deep meditation is like this. Scattered mind, aching body is like this. And what I loved about that, and it's just something you can experiment with if you want to try to take it on as something to work with, is it does two things. First of all, it's an acknowledgement of the difficulties that says, you know, yeah, it's hard. To me, it brought that piece of compassion in. This is challenging. This does hurt. It's not easy to be with this. Yeah, I'm suffering. So it kind of acknowledges that. But it also brings just the direct acknowledgement, the bare presence with that. It's just like this. And brings you directly in contact with the experience. Taking out the reaction, the I don't want this, I can't take this, and just opens up. And so we make a shift. We just flip everything right around instead of Nope, nope, can't have this experience. We shift it right around to, oh, what's arising in the moment? So whatever. Self-judgment and criticism. Agitation. This, this also can go for pleasant experiences, too. I'm focusing more on the unpleasant ones. Right? And we get interested in that. Right? Is the potential for freedom really contained in this moment? Is, could that be true? So we can investigate to see. Right? Already we've got a taste of a little bit of freedom in that moment because we've already taken the first step to go out of that reactive, unconscious stance we take, that adversarial relationship we can have with our own deep 
experience. And it flips it right around. It's that, isn't there the book titled, um, is it Radical Self-Acceptance? Yeah, I love that title. In a sense, this practice can be thought of as radical self-acceptance. What is it that's real and true? When we get a contracted, fixed sense of how everything's supposed to be, it's got to be like this, can't be that. This is who I am. I can't be that. It closes off all possibilities. When that starts to loosen, we're open to anything. So talking like this does not mean that we're going to stop working to change our situation or our circumstances. Right? That wouldn't necessarily be the wise and skillful thing to do in a lot of circumstances. Of course we're going to keep doing that. We're going to live our lives. But what it does mean is while we're busy creating our lives to be the way we want them to be, we get what we get. So the question is, we're going to keep trying. We're not going to stop. The question is then, while we're in the process of doing that, what are we going to do with we get what we get? That's the question. Okay. All right. Another uh, suggestion that I think can save a lot of suffering. It might not be easy to do, but it's just something to plant the seed of. And that is, what would it be like if we come to retreat, we put in a lot of effort, we work really hard, with no expectation of any results at all? How would that be? How would, could you leave the retreat with the mind and the the heart open, the mind at peace, if you came here, did your best on the retreat, and whatever, you know, you felt like nothing happened. I'm not saying that, you know, something obviously happened, but, you know, you walked away and felt like whatever you wanted to get didn't happen. But you know you came here and you did the work. Would it be a failure? How would you feel? If you notice that oftentimes the language that's that's being used is this receptive kind of a language. It's not this striving language, which can come in, but it's more of this language of allowing your experience, being open, receiving, right? It's very, we're using these passive verbs. We could use more active language about gaining, right? We want to cultivate and get more mindfulness, more concentration, and things like that. But we need to be careful sometimes because we can get a striving in, so we tend sometimes to use more language of allowing. Another thing that happened um, when I was on this long retreat is I showed up with a, a list, an extensive list, of all the things I wanted to accomplish, all the meditative states, 
that we wanted to, and experiences and all the insights. There wasn't, I didn't formally make a list, but there was a list. And it better happen or there's going to be big trouble. <laughs> so, the retreat was going along fine, just not according to the list. So I went to uh, Joseph Goldstein, who I was interviewing with. I'd been there about a month, and I said, oh, Joseph, you know, this, what's going on? And he said to me, well, you know, of course there's, you know, there is a path and there is some gaining and cultivation, but it's really not about gaining any particular state or experience. The deeper truth is in the non-clinging to whatever is arising. And I said something back to him like, well, yes, Joseph, of course that's true, but in order to realize that fact, I've got to get whatever I said to him. Now, I should have known right there that in that I got to get, that's a setup for suffering. And I know better than that, but I fell into the trap. You know, this was my big retreat. So for a number of months, I really suffered worrying about how's the practice going and, you know, on the, on the, the times when it really was, the samadhi was deep and the heart was open and it was you're just really in it. It's going great and I was happy. And in the times when it's falling to bits and I'm struggling and I was suffering. And it took a long time for me to get to the point to realize, and this is very, very important, our job is not to make anything happen. Our job is to show up the best we can. I emphasize the best we can, which is enough. You don't have to be able to do it any better than you do it. You bring what you have to it, and you sit and walk the best you can, as continuously as you can. The practice knows how and when to open in its own way. And I love the the metaphor that, um, or I guess the analogy that um, Ajahn Chai uses of growing a chili plant. So you go, you know, you plant the seed. What we, and the plant knows, you, can, you know, you can't make the plant grow faster. You know, our job is to show up, you put the plant the seed, prepare the soil, water it, protect it from insects. That's our part of the bargain. The plant knows how to grow. Right? But what we do when we come to our meditation is we want the chili plant to grow, flower, and produce chilies all in one day. <laughs> and he goes on to say, you know, you can't go tugging on the leaves demanding that the plant grow faster than it, right? Than it will. For a long time in my practice, hearing this idea of putting in effort but no expectations, you know, it was nice words, but forget it. I didn't believe it. It's like, I want results. No doubt about it. I mean, that's just what's the truth. <coughs> I've really come to have a, lot, a deep faith in this practice and a lot of trust. The Dharma knows how to unfold. 
what's needed comes if we do our part. So it, if we take out that whole striving and gaining, then it allows us to actually work quite hard. Right? We can really work to develop concentration, to develop mindfulness, to develop qualities of the heart and mind. And it takes that whole extra layer of suffering that we put on about our expectation of the result off. So what I want to do is I have a couple of more tips I want to give, but I just want to recap a couple of things. And I've been throwing a lot of different things out, so let me just briefly recap here. I think the first point I made was about the importance of, of that this all hinges or depends upon some level of mindful awareness or else we just get sucked in and lost in things. So just the importance of, of developing that quality. And then I talked about recognizing that there are some experiences that might be so intense that rather than trying to be present with it, that it might be useful to know when it's time to back off a little, right? When it's time to move the knee or take a rest or something. Now we want to be careful because it's easy to fool ourselves here and really there are times maybe when we could put in more effort but we get lazier, just don't want to or whatever. So yeah, we need, want to be careful and not let our moods dictate but just to recognize that. Then I talked about not judging our practice by how pleasant or unpleasant it is. And talked about this tendency of always seeking our well-being in having pleasant experiences and not having unpleasant experiences. Right? And to know that that's just part of being alive and it's deeply wired into us but that we can also start to loosen the grip around that and, and open more into an, a second kind of well-being or happiness, which is the unconditioned, which is not about the experience, but is about what's the relationship I'm having with the experience. Right? Can I actually be present for this? Right? So we talked about that. And we also talked about taking an active interest when some of the difficulties arise rather than getting in that re automatic reactive place. But actually, you know, when some suffering comes up, just to notice, oh, there's some suffering here. Let me take a look here. Let me come to know the nature of, of this. Explore it. And then I also talked about making effort without expectation. And I don't know if we're once and for all will be free of all expectation, but it's a place we can work with. And when we have an expectation, look, it's important here, we're going to fall back into the old habits and the old traps a thousand times. Okay? Until we're completely free, we're going to get caught. It's no big deal. We're just going to suffer when it happens, that's all. So we need to know that that's going to happen. And we need a lot of compassion for ourselves. 
we need a lot of compassion for those times when we are caught and we are struggling and it really hurts and we're not able to work with it. But also to know that there's the times when we can start to learn to be more free. Right? It's, and we don't despair that it's hopeless because there is this path that's leading us, you know, bit by bit to more, I keep using the same word, more freedom, more liberation. So, there's an acronym that stands for a few steps we can take that I think is useful. I like the acronym. You may have heard it, but I think it's useful, so I want to give it to you and just to talk about a way that we can, how we can use this. And it's the word RAIN, R-A-I-N. And it stands for these four steps. I'll just name them and then I'll say just a bit about each one. RAIN, recognize. Hold on. Accept, investigate, non, non-clinging, non-identification, non-attachment, I'd say, is the end. So first depends on the recognition. In other words, if whatever's going on, we don't see it, we're lost in it, like we've been saying, you know, we're lost. So to be able to recognize what's going on, and then some acceptance is that place that starts to when we see that we've contracted around the experience, is to try the best we can, the best we can, to let go and loosen. So the recognition, the acceptance. And then from that place when we do, if we can, loosen around it a bit, then that allows some space to start investigating what's going on here. Look into it, see what's the nature. Where's the energy? Where's the juice behind this? And then the non-identification, rather than just being totally sucked into it, we can get some space around it. Right? So, for example, if thoughts are arising of, that are of a, of a maybe harshly self-critical judging mind, say, right? we start to just, rather than just believing our thoughts, which we, te- we tend to do so much, identify, you know, that's us, right? You know, there's not much to a thought, is there, when you think about it, when you look at it? Not much there. I mean, there's something there. There is an experience we call a thought, but it's pretty ephemeral. But look what the power of a thought, that a thought has if it's unseen, right? Tremendous power. When seen as just a thought, it doesn't have that much power at all. It's just, you know, words in the mind, you know, that says, you know, whatever, you're no good. I'm no good. When unseen, we believe it and we suffer. Oh, I'm no good. Just a th- it was just a thought. So that's an example if we can recognize and have the non-identification. Right? It loosens its grip on us. So that's one piece, that acronym RAIN. Okay? Recognize, accept, investigate, and non-attachment, non-clinging, non-identification is the end. So we have a few minutes left, so I'm just going to throw one more piece in that could actually be a whole Dharma talk in of itself. So I'll just say a bit about it, but even just a few words can be useful about it. There are certain states of the mind and heart that get labeled hindrances. 
And there's this list called the five hindrances. Some of you have probably heard many Dharma talks on the five hindrances. <coughs> We've really been talking tonight about the, the five hindrances, but I haven't been using that language. Okay. So let me just mention what the five hindrances are and which, why it's useful to, to recognize these is, is that it, it, just to see this is because it helps us to recognize it's that R of the rain if we, if we label it. And the reason we call these certain experiences hindrances, remember we, we, this teaching is about opening up to whatever is arising, right? So why do we take certain experiences of, or mind states and call them hindrances? It's because these are states of the mind and heart that have a, a particularly strong tendency to trap us and to get us hooked in. That's why we call them the hindrances, so it's good to recognize them. So, just briefly, the hindrances are, the first one is aversion. Sometimes I use the word um, hatred. It's pushing things away that we don't like. So an experience can be unpleasant. And in addition to that, there can be an aversion there. Right? You, and there can be an unpleasant experience arising without any aversion at all, if, we're in a, if, if really our equanimity is strong enough. It just sees unpleasant. The unpleasant doesn't turn into pleasant when we have equanimity. Right? But we're just able to, we're in a, there's a deeper level of peace we're able to find in the present. So there's aversion, pushing things away. Another hindrance is the opposite. It's pulling things towards us, holding on, grasping and clinging, sometimes called greed. But it's more than the way we typically use greed. Anytime we're holding on to the pleasant, Right? That's a hindrance. So in our practice, if there's some real pleasant experience going on, that's fine, great, appreciate it, enjoy it. But if we're clinging and attached to it, it's a setup for our suffering. Similarly, we all know if there's something unpleasant in the body, the mind, the heart, to the extent we have aversion towards it, it's a setup for suffering. Another hindrance is restlessness. Probably many of you know that one, so there's not that much to say about it, right? And it can take many forms, but just a few is it can be where the minds just won't settle down, can't sit still, feel like if I sit here, you know, one more moment, I'm going to jump out of my skin. You know, there's many levels of intensity and styles of restlessness. And then another hindrance is the opposite of that. Well, I, don't, yeah, I guess it's the opposite. It's called sloth and torpor. So it's more than just sleepiness. I think sleepiness would be part of that. But, you know, sloth, I love the words, but it's basically, you know, when the mind is just thick and dull, and even if there's not sleepiness, there's just not a crisp sharpness there. There's just a real heaviness of dullness there. Or sleepiness, too, so sloth and torpor. And the fifth of these hindrances is doubt which can take many forms, and we just don't have time to really get into it. So I'm mentioning these all very briefly. It's just another way to approach our experience and think about it if it's useful. But doubt can be, for example, you know, I can't do this. The practice isn't working. It's certainly not working for me. Look at everyone else in here. They're so still and quiet. Everybody here is blissed out. 
except me. Right? That's doubt. Right? I'm, you know, it's, it's the, and the problem with doubt, I've always found doubt to be the, personally the most challenging because it seems to undermine the very ability of, of, of the, the powers I have to bring to any experience are just undermined with doubt. So it can be very challenging. So there's a couple of ways to work with, with each of these hindrances, and I'll just mention them real briefly. Again, in a way, it's kind of a repeat of what's been already said. So if we have a lot of aversion, there are two basic approaches I can think of. One approach is, it's fine. We don't have to get rid of aversion. We can just know mindfully that aversion is present. And if that's true, if we're able to be with aversion in that way, that's good practice. It doesn't feel good. It's great practice. There's something unpleasant. We know that. There's aversion. We know the aversion. We can be present with it. Another way that, to work with it that can be skillful is, to, is if the aversion's you know, getting in our way, is to do something to ameliorate it, right? to lessen it. So, you know, a traditional antidote, if you will, to aversion could be um, metta, loving kindness, right? If there's something, you know, if we have aversion to a person, we can bring some metta to, to that and as a way just to work with it. With the opposite, with greed, um, once again, if it's seen mindfully, fine, we can work with it. If it's useful, there might be times when we want to also lessen it, ameliorate it. Well, uh, uh, a traditional antidote towards our clinging is to contemplate impermanence. Right? This is not going to last, so that can help cut, undercut sort of the, the, the charge of the energy around the clinging there. With restlessness, again, it's possible, it, it can be quite unpleasant, but it's possible to sit with restlessness mindfully. It's just another experience like all others, so we can work with it that way. As an, an antidote to it is to um, increase the concentration. So if we've got a lot of restlessness, you can really kind of bear down, say, on the primary object in the meditation, say the breath, and really get more concentrated and focus and pull more energy into it. Okay. For sloth and torpor, now sloth and torpor can be difficult because, again, it can be worked with just fine. Um, if we're able to be present, but because the mind is dull or sleepy, it doesn't have sort of the power. So, excuse me, it can be quite challenging to be with it mindfully, but you can. Um, and we've already talked here about, um, on this retreat, about some of the antidotes to the sloth and torpor, which, you know, you can stand up. It's things to bring in more wakefulness, more energy. Stand up. Open the eyes. Take some deep breaths. Maybe go put some cold water in the face. You know, maybe do some walking meditation. You know, and actually, you know, at some point, maybe we need to go take a nap, too, you know, if we really are, you know, that, that might be what's needed at some time. 
doubt. Uh, well, I don't know. I think doubt's a tough one. Um, but I would just say that finding what supports us. When we're in doubt, maybe we, we don't have the resources necessarily in ourselves, and we need to go maybe read inspirational books, talk with a teacher, get the support of Sangha. Just find what it is that can support us in that time is the best I know to say about doubt. Okay. So the last little thing, I know the hindrance part, I kind of glued it on at the end here, and it was, you know, as I said, that could be a whole Dharma talk or series of talks just on these hindrances. But I'm going to give you, a, it's kind of a silly little way to remember them because I threw it out kind of fast, and if you can't remember it, this is something someone told me, and it worked very nicely, so you can try it as a way of remembering what the hindrances are if you haven't memorized them. Think of, it, think of yourself as sitting kind of in the center point. And if there's things that can pull the mind in a few different directions, things can pull the mind away or towards you, it's this motion, or things that can pull the mind up or down. If something pulls the mind away, it's like a pushing away, that's aversion. So the mind is pushing away. The opposite is the clinging, pulling towards. So you just have to remember there's that motion. You'll always remember those two hindrances. There's aversion, there's clinging. And when the mind's moving up and down like this, it's got restless, it's, you know, if you will, it's too up, or it's too low, sloth and torpor. So just remember those, those four motions, away and towards, up and down. And then you can just, you'll always remember the hindrances. And then the fifth one, doubt, you just have to remember. <laughs> okay. Let's sit for a few moments. This is from Ajahn Chah. Do everything with a mind that lets go. Do not expect any praise or reward. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will know complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. <clears throat> 